This is Maine Current's Independent Local News, Views, and Culture. I'm Amy Brown. It's the third Tuesday of the month, so it's time for our Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents with our regular guests, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, and former State Representative Ralph Chapman, recurring guest Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters and host of the Democracy Forum here on WERU is with us again today, along with Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. We are recording this program via Zoom on Monday morning. We're going to start with talking a little bit about how the Senate debate went on Friday night. Amy Freed and Ralph Chapman uh, uh, will weigh in on this. And uh, who wants to go first? Maybe start with who you thought won the debate, if anyone. I think I think everyone made some some points. Um, uh, I think that uh, Susan Collins clearly demonstrated that she's trying to uh, bridge the uh, the distance between the core Trump supporters and the more moderates uh, of her party, and uh, perhaps uh, some of the independents, by refusing to indicate uh, whether she would support Trump or not. Uh, to, to say yes or no will alienate some on either either side, and she clearly was trying not to do that. I think that uh, Sarah Gideon uh, showed a, a, a type of feistiness. I know Sarah very well, uh, having served with her in the legislature, so um, uh, I, I could see that she prepared uh, extensively for that debate. It's the first time, I think, that she uh, appeared in public with uh, Susan Collins. Uh, Lisa Savage has clearly uh, outlined her progressive agenda. Uh, uh, Max Lynn, uh, to me, was uh, the disruptive candidate, and that's not a, a technique that appeals to me, um, but uh, that was his, uh, his modus operandi. Um, I, I uh, was was pleased to see them. I'm always disappointed in the amount of exaggeration or misrepresentation of actual facts that the candidates uh, present. I mean, they try to put their best foot forward, and in so doing, they stray farther from the truth than I would appreciate. Mm. Yeah, it would be interesting to see some sort of instant fact check thing with debates, if there could be something like that. But Amy Freed, what did you think of the debates? Well, this is the first time we've seen the senatorial ca- candidates together uh, for the general election. And I, th- and I think if you think about the purpose of debates, the impact of debates, I mean, it's important for people who are making a choice to see, see the different candidates and hear what they have to say, get a sense of who they are, their temperament, their approach to things. Uh, but it's also the sort of thing that often doesn't make a big difference unless there's some, you know, extraordinarily poor performance. And um, I thought that in a way it was Gideon who had the most potentially to lose if she came out and she didn't do well, but she was strong as a candidate. Uh, she was very direct. She was, uh, had clear answers, which she gave, you know, sort of uh, in, in, uh, in ways that could be heard in relatively, you know, short amounts of time. Uh, so, so I think that, you know, if, if the polls are all right, and, you know, who knows, but if the polls are right, that Collins is behind and in the low to mid 40s as a, an incumbent, uh, then it's probably was most helpful for Gideon. Um, 
because she was able to show that she does understand issues and was able to answer them. Um, I could also say a little bit more about the question about Trump and, you know, whether she supports Trump. I mean, I agree with Ralph. She's in this difficult position, but it's also ends up being not just about what her position is, but her willingness to be direct with main people. Um, uh, you know, there, Senator Collins was very open about her views about whether Trump deserved election four years ago, and now it is refusing to say. And I think it conflicts with that kind of main political culture, emphasizing independence, the kind of Margaret Chase Smith, Bill Cohen sort of model. Um, and I think the way that the Collins campaign planned to answer that or to push back was to ask, to have Senator Collins ask, how would you have voted fit for Chief Judge Justice Roberts, which was something that happened 15 years ago? You know, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that affects some voters. To me, it just seems not like a very live issue. You know, like, would you have voted? How would you have made a decision 15 years ago based on the record that Roberts had then? I, I don't think that's much of a much of a concern for Maine people. It's either how are you going to vote now for the Supreme Court? You know, we just had a list of um, potential Supreme Court justices that Trump put out, including Senator Ted Cruz, Senator Tom Cotton, another of other people. How are you going to vote there? Are you going to vote for president? What are you going to vote on different policy issues? So to me, it, that felt a bit like a very planned campaign stunt. And perhaps it will affect some people, but to me, it seemed uh, just a little off, like it wasn't a relevant question, really. Yeah, it did seem like it was intended to be kind of a zinger. Um, a lot of progressives that I've seen on social media were really thrilled with how Lisa Savage did. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the independence first with Lisa Savage. How would you rate her performance? I think Lisa did very well. I mean, we talked with her on this program. Uh, I can't remember exactly what day. And, you know, I thought she did, or I know on WERU I've talked about, maybe it wasn't this program, but, um, you know, it yeah, was uh, a few times, I think on this show. Right, right. And I, and she's, you know, gotten very good, um, you know, practice and doing these kinds of things. She clearly has strong ideas. She expresses them clearly and well. And I think there's certainly a constituency for her. And of course we have ranked choice voting so that, uh, you know, that allows for people who are perhaps, um, they do wanna uh, change who is in office. They would want the incumbent to lose, but they don't, they, they don't wanna, uh, you know, do a, take a vote that would, that would also undermine what their first preference would be. So that they, you know, I'm seeing more and more from the savage camp and allies, people saying rank Lisa first. So, uh, so making making it not just she's the one we want you to vote for, but placing it in that rank choice context. So I thought she did a, a very good job on, on a number of levels. It's, well, it's significant that she is, I think, the only candidate that really stressed the fact that it is a rank choice election. And uh, obviously, that's to a disadvantage for the uh, major party candidates. Uh, I should say, by the way, just in full disclosure, that I have publicly uh, uh, endorsed Lisa. And I don't, uh, uh, in the context of this program, I'm not making uh, a pitch for her, but I just want to make 
the comment that I, I have been public with my support for her. And in part because I have been a strong supporter of ranked choice voting even prior to my service in the legislature. Uh, that is, I think, one of the major uh, accomplishments of uh, the, le it wasn't the legislature that did it, but it was the people that put it into law, but uh, the legislature actually undid it. But um, I, I think that's one of the major accomplishments of the last decade is that we have moved to a spot where Maine does have some ranked choice voting. And, uh, and I think this is an important race where that will show up. Uh, I think she presented herself well. I think she presented her ideas well. And uh, if it were not a ranked choice voted election for this position, uh, then it would fall into that category of the spoiler effect, um, uh, which is a, uh, we've heard recently, uh, reminded recently of Wisconsin in which the Green Party candidate uh, got more votes in Wisconsin than the difference between uh, uh, Hillary and uh, and Trump, who, who won it by a smaller margin than the voters that voted for the Green Party candidate, and and that's an example of a, a spoiler effect uh, that we're happy to be able to avoid now in Maine. All right, I want to get your take on Max Lynn real quick before we move on. And uh, listeners will note uh, you're listening to Maine Currents, and we have uh, four guests with us here today, but uh, the folks from the League of Women Voters are not weighing in with opinions on political candidates. We'll, they'll be talking with us shortly. So a few months ago, a rep from Max Lynn's campaign joined us here on uh, the elections edition of uh, Maine Currents with uh, Amy Freed and Ralph Chapman, regular guests were here with us. I can't remember, Ann Luther, you've been kind of a semi-regular guest. I can't remember if you were with us that day or not. Uh, but um, he did send a representative. We had uh, Lisa Savage and Tiffany Bond with us. Sarah Gideon declined to be on with other candidates and Sarah Collins, or Susan Collins' office has never actually responded to any of our invitations. Um, but Lynn's representative at that time said they were about to launch her website. It sounded like the campaign, they had just gotten confirmation that uh, the person who was challenging his right to be on the ballot had dropped their challenge, so he was definitely going to be on the ballot. But then within days after that show aired, he announced that he was suspending, Max Lynn announced he was suspending his campaign. Shortly after that, there was another big news blast that he had announced that he would resume his campaign unless Susan Collins agreed to a five-year ban on all immigration, opposing the CMP NECEC uh, project, student loan relief, giving $5,000 to every family, uh, some relief for small businesses, and endorsing term limits. And I could not find whether Susan Collins ever respond to him or just ignored him. But within a few days, Max Lynn was announcing that he was back in the race. Um, back in 2018, he was disqualified from the Senate race here in Maine because of forged and invalid signatures, including some that were allegedly from people who were dead. He kept campaigning even after he was disqualified and started putting up campaign signs in New Hampshire, ticking off the folks down there. He's run as a a Reform Party candidate in Florida. He's been a Democrat. And Friday night at the debates, he uh, 
flat out refuse to answer direct questions at time or at times or even comment on anything related to the question that was being asked of him. He went over time. Uh, there was a point at which I actually wondered how they were going to deal with it because he did not seem like he was going to follow any of the rules of the debate. And for some reason, when these people are hosting these debates, they don't ever seem to remember that the microphones have an off button, which as somebody who does audio engineering, I'm often at home saying, if they're out of time, turn the microphones off. But anyway, so that's a little bit of background. There's a lot more there. Definitely a colorful candidate. He's picking positions from the left and the right. But I wondered Friday night if he was trying to channel Trump a little bit with his populist kind of like, no, I'm not going to listen to you media people. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, or maybe something else is going on. I've never actually met or talked to the man myself. So I uh, just wanted to get your impression before we move on, since he is the other independent, we do have right choice voting. Uh, Amy Freed, Ralph Chapman, either one of you want to weigh in on him and his uh, performance in the debate Friday night? Sure. Um, I mean, clearly he, he was uh, adopting, I guess, a strategy to be disruptive, you know, to say, okay, you're going to ask me that question. It's a great question, but I'm not going to answer it. And I was uh, working my, on my next column for the Bangor Daily News, which is going to be about healthcare. So I was looking to see what did Max Lynn say about healthcare. And in the debate, that was one of the places where he said, that's a great question. I'm not going to answer it. Um, so, you know, this, then you can't really say anything about him. You can't, you know, he doesn't, he hasn't really taken any kind of position there. And he like literally said that for anybody who's listening to us today, who did not hear the debates, that's not like figuratively, he literally said, great question. I'm not going to answer it. Right. Right. Um, and you know, I think that there's certainly an audience or a constituency for disruptive candidates, but usually you do have to have something beyond that. And, and I don't think he even talked about his particular issues, issue positions all that much. Um, he, you know, and he spent too much time on the, I'm a different person out of the box, blah, blah, blah. Um, on the other hand, I could imagine maybe a, a small number of people voting for him, you know, even if it was 1% or 2%. And in a very, very close race, where you're increasing the number of people who are voting, that, that could make some difference because you, it could contribute to nobody winning a majority on the first ballot, perhaps. That's how I see it. You know, you've, you've expanded the voting pool. And Judge Walker, in his uh, last decision on ranked choice for the congressional elections, uh, there was an attempt to get a preliminary injunction to stop it being used in the Senate race. He said, well, people will vote for people for all kinds of reasons. Even people, they know they're not going to win and they're just doing it because they're sort of like, um, I don't want anybody who actually could get elected, essentially. He, he quoted W.C. Fields. Um, you know, so there are voters who will do a pure protest vote. And I think that's what a Max Lind vote would be. It would be a pure protest vote. It still sends some sort of um, information out there, which is, I don't like anybody. I just want someone to break things uh, primarily. And I think it still could have an, some kind of impact on the outcome. But, you know, his ability to really build any kind of significant audience, I mean, you know, he's not going to, I would be so shocked if he got as many, as much support as, you know, Lisa Savage, for example, in the 
in the initial tally. It's, you know, he, it's a very, it's going to be a small percentage of people unless he drops out again, which of course could happen. I mean, who knows with this fellow? But he, he, he's on the ballot. The ballots have gone to the printer. So his name's on the ballot, whether he drops out or not. There, people will have a chance to check that box if they want to. Absolutely. And I don't know. I mean, this is just hypothetical. I really don't know. But I kind of assume that somebody who would vote for Maxlin, who would rank him first, is probably not going to rank anybody else after that, or certainly not one of the major party candidates. So I don't think that his vote goes any further than, you know, an initial round, probably, uh, you know, the support, his, the supporters who have voted for him, I don't think will get transferred to one of the major party candidates. But he's still go if he's on the ballot and he gets those votes, he's still increasing the denominator from which the overall vote shares are, you know, looked at um, and, and could therefore help to prevent any individual from getting a majority on the first round. Um, and, you know, uh, one more thing I'll just throw out there uh, about ranked choice, which is that I don't, haven't seen it talked about very much, but I hope somebody will ask Senator Collins if she would challenge ranked choice as Poliquin did, uh, should she end up getting a plurality and then lose in the final tally. Because uh, that itself could have an impact on how people decide to vote. Like you could imagine someone who would say, I really want to vote for Lisa Savage because I support her, but I don't want Susan Collins to win, but if Collins is going to challenge it, they might, they might say no. And, and in any case, it's just good information to know. The main people have supported ranked choice several times at the ballot box, and it is the, rule, the law of, the, of our state. <laughs> um, and so I think it's a good thing to find out, would she challenge that? But of course, you know, it's been challenged from so many different angles in so many different times, and there is just not a leg to stand on. I mean, up to the First Circuit, there's no well, hope. But Poliquin withdrew his challenge at the First Circuit. He just asked for a preliminary injunction to stop the vote from being certified, and they didn't go with that. But, you know, I, I could imagine, if, especially if control of the Senate depends on it, that the challenge will, there'll be an attempt to bring the challenge all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, I don't think the legal arguments are strong against it. You know, I listened, I went to one of the, um, one of the judicial proceedings in, in, in 2018. I've read, you know, briefs and decisions. I don't think that the arguments against it are strong. And I think Judge Walker has done a really good job in laying that out. But, um, and I'm ashamed of my fellow political scientists for their horrible work and uh, as expert witnesses, because they've, you know, they've made really, really bad arguments that weren't very support, well supported by evidence. But, um, but nonetheless, you never know what's going to happen with the Supreme Court. And I, I really, you know, I didn't think in 2000, the Supreme Court would even take Bush v. Gore, because it involves this, you know, Florida, Florida Supreme Court would take care of it. And they were a bunch of federalists at the you know, believing in states' rights, but they did. And so that, that's the only thing I, I am, I have some concerns about, about that. But in any case, I, I think that it should be asked of Senator Collins in some debate or somewhere if she would uh, challenge it, if that's how it turned out. 
All right. We're going to, I just want to let people know what they're listening to and then circle back around to Ralph for any reaction about how Max Lynn performed in the debate. And then we're going to move on and get the folks from the League of Women Voters in here. Uh, you heard a little bit from Ann Luther there, but we want to hear more from her and also from Will Hayward. They are two of my guests, along with Professor Amy Freed, who you just heard. She is a chair of the political science department at the University of Maine and former step State Representative Ralph Chapman, you are listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. So, uh, Ralph, did you have an opinion about yeah. how uh, Max Lynn performed in Friday's debate? I, I wonder whether he's channeling this chaos creation that seems to have uh, helped to solidify a kind of cult following for Trump. Uh, chaos creation to me is, is uh, anathema. It's something that doesn't doesn't speak to me at all, but I think for people who are frustrated with government and don't fully appreciate or understand the difficulties of having a government or the reasons why we need a government, uh, the chaos creation seems to uh, seems to find a home there, and I I find that a disturbing trend. Um, but I otherwise uh, agree with uh, Amy Freed that this is not likely to have a large effect on the election. I did, however, since he made reference to his website while he was speaking, I went to his website and did not find what he said was there. Uh, I could find only a, a donation button. Uh, uh, he seemed to be trying to collect some, some donations and he made some comments about uh, his website that uh, didn't match with the reality of what I saw when I, when I visited it. So to me, he's a, he's an, uh, an interesting and disturbing element in a, as a disruptive candidate. Um, however, I'm, I'm pleased that uh, ranked choice voting gives an opportunity for people to uh, speak to a wide range of issues, even if we don't know what, uh, what his view is on some of the important issues. Uh, so uh, I, I, I don't I don't deny him his uh, ability to be a participant, and uh, if there are people who want to vote for him, I, uh, I, they'll have an opportunity to, uh, and and I support that. All right. Well, shifting gears now, and I apologize to listeners if uh, you can hear the lawn mowing going on on one side of me and the dog barking on the other side of me. These are some of the joys of recording via Zoom from home, but it's safe, so we're happy for that. Uh, I mentioned the governor's order, executive order on elections uh, on the WERU main coronavirus report that, that we do live here a couple times a week. Uh, just sort of the basics of it, but there's there are several details here which I wanted the folks from the League of Women Voters as well as uh, former State Representative Ralph Chapman and Professor Amy Freed to weigh in on uh, in evaluating whether or not they do move us in the right direction or get us all the way to what we need for safe elections here in Maine. So. Uh, Will and one of you want to kind of take the lead in summarizing what's actually in this executive order? There were two things there that were kind of important. One was that they um, once again extended the deadline for mail-in voter registrations um, 
from three weeks before election day to two weeks before election day. That's important in a presidential election because presidential elections tend to turn out a lot of first time voters. And sometimes at the polling place, the line for same day registration is longer than the line to actually vote. So encouraging people to register early is definitely a constructive measure and giving people that extra week to submit their mail-in registrations is super helpful. So if you're not a registered voter, you have to submit your mail-in voter registration to be received by your town clerk by two weeks before election day. And I think that's what, October 15th, 19th? Mm -hmm. Will, do you know the date actually? I don't have the exact date in front of me. But Let's put that on the air because it'll oh, be- Oh, it's, yeah. yes, it is. The executive order says October 19th. Okay, thanks. Um, so by October 19th. The other good thing that was in there, and there's been a lot of um, question about this, about when you mail in an absentee ballot and it gets rejected for whatever reason, you know, what is your opportunity to fix the problem? Um, and for the July election, the executive order put in, um, or the Secretary of State put in some much stronger cure guidance that made sure that town clerks made their very best effort to notify people if their ballot was rejected for a missing or mismatched signature and give that voter an opportunity to come in in person and remedy the problem. This time, the cure guidance was even stronger so that if your ballot is rejected for a signature mismatch, it will be cast as a challenged ballot. Um, it's super important. The most frequent reason why absentee ballots get rejected is for not having a signature at all. So if you're voting absentee, don't forget to sign the envelope. Okay, that's like the number one thing. Don't forget to sign the envelope. But if you do forget to sign the envelope, they're supposed to call you and give you a chance to come in and fix it. And if your signature does not actually match, um, this time for the first time, they're going to have to cast those as, um, as challenged ballots. That was in an affidavit that the, Secretary of, the Deputy Secretary of State filed in a lawsuit that's actually having oral arguments today. So what does that mean exactly, if it's a challenged ballot? In Maine, Maine hasn't, doesn't use provisional ballots the way a lot of states do. In, in Maine, we call it, we've called them challenged ballots, and it means that your ballot gets cast on election day with a secret number attached to it, and it gets counted on election night along with all the other ballots then if the margin of victory in any race is less than the number of challenged ballots in that race, then they pull all the challenged ballots and try to remedy what the challenge was. So the great thing, I mean, this is, Maine is the only state that does it this way. In my estimation, this is like the world class. This is the ace number one best way of doing challenged ballots. Um, and, and so in, and like, I don't, I don't really recall any time when those challenge ballots actually got adjudicated except in a recount. So if, if your signature doesn't match, your ballot is gonna get cast, it's gonna get counted, and it's gonna be in the election night tabulation. Then if it's a very close race, they'll pull it out and you'll be called in to fix or um, discard the signature. and. Um, and make sure that it was really you casting that ballot. So the signatures are looking at something that's on file at the town clerk's office, 
whether or not in do they have to be precise? Are they looking at? I mean, they're not obviously all staffed with handwriting experts. So, right. how much I mean, leeway do they have? They're supposed to count anything that's even close, but they're comparing it to what was on your voter registration card. And like for me, that was 20 years ago, right? I've been living here for 20 years. So, you know, people's signatures do shift over time. They're supposed to give a lot of latitude. And, um, you know, Will may have the statistics there, I'm not sure. But in the July election, the number of absentee ballots got that got rejected for a signature mismatch was really very, very, very low. It was it was less than 10. And for comparison, the amount that were rejected for lacking a signature altogether was around 900, which is still very low, but a much larger proportion than for a signature mismatch. Anything else in this executive order that people should be aware of that gets us closer to having safer elections? Or there was some other stuff in there, but... Here? Some of the stuff that we hoped for that was not there was the opportunity to register by email or by some online mechanism that is not going to be possible for this time. And um, we were hoping for prepaid postage, which we also didn't get. The other thing that that it wasn't in the executive order, but it was in the affidavit that the deputy filed in that lawsuit um, is that there is apparently on the way, an online lookup where voters can go online and check the status of their absentee ballot. So they'll be able to look and see whether their request had been received. They'll be able to look to see whether the ballot had been mailed to them and when the ballot was mailed to them. They'll be able to see if their return ballot was received and accepted or rejected. Um, and if rejected for what reason, and you know, then they can go in themselves and, and fix it. Now, again, that wasn't in the executive order. That was in um, the affidavit that, that Julie Flynn filed in that court case. But, you know. And who is Julie Flynn? Date. You know, so this was a sworn deposition, and I think we can count on that as, you know, being what to expect. Okay. And I'll, I'll I, let me just, I, I don't know if, if it was just a blip on this end, but I didn't catch who uh, the person was you were referring to. I think you answered it, but the audio cut out on this end. So in case listeners didn't catch it, Anne, Julie it's Flynn. Ju Julie Flynn is the Deputy Secretary of State. She's the one okay. who runs the Elections and um, Commissions Division of the Great. Secretary's Office. Thank you. Will Hayward, sorry I interrupted you there. What were you going to say? Uh, all good. I just wanted to um, expand a little bit on things in the executive order as well. So there were a few th things added in there that I think will really help clerks um, administer this election as well. They moved, they changed the deadlines for um, towns to change or consolidate polling places, um, which we've, we've heard a, a lot that schools in particular have been challenging places for um, you know, clerks to try to figure out how to run an election during coronavirus um, and schools are a lot less comfortable with um, elections being held there. So it gives towns more time to do that. And towns also have additional time before election day to um, start processing absentee ballots, which is important because we know that there's going to be a flood of absentee ballots this year. 58% um, of people voted absentee in the primary as compared to 30 to 35% in a normal year. And so with a similar rate, that would be just a massive amount of absentee ballots that under the 
current law or law prior to this executive order, um, it would just be really hard for towns to process those all on time. So those two things we were glad to see to help, you know, make clerks jobs a bit easier um, and kind of help help the election process go as smoothly as possible. And then one other thing I want to mention was that the um, executive order also reaffirmed um, the use of ballot drop boxes for absentee ballots. And this is a thing that we have been um, following very closely. And they started to really roll this out for July, um, you know, having drop boxes so that if you don't want to put your absentee ballots in the mail, you can take it to this drop box, which is usually located right outside the town office and, you know, safely deposit it, deposit it there. And you can, you know, know with confidence your ballot got where it needs to go. Um, and so between um, some of the federal funds that have been opened up for elections, this executive order and some of the, um, you know, assistance that groups have, outside groups have been providing to help towns, you know, find out about how to acquire these boxes. We're seeing more and more towns um, start to implement these ballot drop boxes. And it's a really great way for voters to um, have a lot more confidence with their ballots, especially as, um, you know, if there's all these headlines about USPS ongoing right now. Amy Freed. Yeah, I'd like to ask a few questions of our league <laughs> members here, uh, which is uh, first, um, um, what is the rule for when ballots can be counted, ones that have come in before election day? Because I know there's variation by state. And then the other is, would there be a problem or, well, what would happen if anybody followed the advice of President Trump to both vote absentee and then tried to vote on election day? In Maine, if somebody tried to do that, they, they would get caught. Like when your absentee ballot gets received by your town clerk, it's considered a cast ballot at that point. You can't get it back. They don't. They may or may not actually open it, depending on when they get it. But it's a cast ballot at that point, and you are checked off the incoming voter list when that happens. So if you then subsequently try to show up in person, it's going to look like you already voted. Okay. Now, if there's a genuine mistake, you can swear an affidavit on threat of perjury that it wasn't you and cast a challenge ballot like we just talked about. But under normal circumstances, you are going to be flagged as having already voted. Um, so it, and I think it's that way in most states. I mean, that's not going to work. Um, the, the other th question that you asked was about what again? When can clerks start counting ballots? They're, they're not actually allowed to count them until election night. They can start processing them according to the executive order. It used to be three days before, now it's five days before. So they, you know, let's say they're going to get 500,000 absentee ballots. They can start opening those envelopes and putting those ballots through the scanner um, a, a week ahead of election day, but they can't actually run the tabulation. Um, all they can do is run them through the scanner and then they have to wait until election night to run the total. Mm -hmm. And I'll just mention that that tabulation is the, you know, that's the vast majority of the time it takes to process each absentee ballot. And so the concern that we've been hearing about, and you know, other states have laws where you can't even start that process um, until election day or until the polls close, which is why there's always that risk of, you know, us not knowing, say, how a swing state turns out until a week later that I don't anticipate here for that reason. Well, and, may, 
you know, Maine, different from like California and New York, has a, a receipt deadline by 8 p.m. on election day. So your ballot has to be received by your town clerk by 8 p.m. on election day, and that's when the counting starts. In some other states, they have a postmark deadline where your ballot can be accepted if it's postmarked um, on election day. And so then those ballots can trickle in for a week or more after the election and still um, the processing can go on. So I, I think because of that um, allowance in, in other states, you know, we're not going to see final results across the country uh, for a long time unless it's truly uh, sort of a landslide type situation. But, you know, there, there people have to expect that there is going to be some continuing processing. We may not know, and it's perfectly normal. It's like not the end of the world. We're not going to know on election night. It may take a little bit longer. And even in Maine, you know, if we have ranked choice voting tabulation in any of these races, that we know can also take 10 days after election. So um, we're just going to have to be patient and, and wait it out. We also know that the governor may be considering some additional measures. I think she hasn't made a final determination on whether Maine should accept the postmark deadline or you know, maybe some other measures that are still being considered depending on circumstances on the ground. I mean, if we found ourselves surprised by unexpected developments in the Postal Service performance, um, you know, some of those measures might well be called for. And I think those, some of those are still on the table. So as far as tracking the ballots goes, uh, can people send it through the post office with one of those little tracking slips if they want to make sure that it got to the town office by a particular time? So if they're concerned that the town clerk might see their signature and go, oh, that person's for the other party and, you know, maybe not record it on time, you can have some kind of verification that it actually arrived before that deadline? Well, I mean, I think that online tracking system, I mean, if they want to pay for postal tracking, that would certainly be an added insurance policy. But I think, first of all, by and large, most of the town clerks are very professional and are going to process all the ballots that they receive. So, I, you know, I think just generally that is a very trustworthy process. And and then, then there is going to be this online lookup service. So you're going to be able to figure out where your ballot is from the time your request was received to the time your ballot was sent to you to the time your ballot was received back and accepted or rejected using this online system. And the league, as well as others, will be heavily promoting that lookup system once it's available at the beginning of October. Ralph Chapman, did you want to jump in here? Well, I, I did. Uh, you know, my first uh, electoral race for statewide office uh, resulted in a recount because it was a close, uh, close uh, count on election night. And I, I got an insight into uh, our voting system, which I don't think most people have, which is the degree to which what the ballot clerks in individual towns, cities and towns, actually, uh, their performance is actually ex extremely uh, uh, good. That is to say, the, the recounts change the vote tallies, but part of that is because ballots that are miscast, um, that the ballot clerks are not allowed to count on election night, uh, can be counted in a recount if there's a determination by the recount process that uh, 
uh, the voter intended a certain a certain outcome uh, for their ballot, even if they miscast the ballot. And so the number of changes that happen in a recount uh, is exceedingly small. In my case, uh, I think there were uh, about a half a dozen ballots that were counted during the recount that were not counted on election night, but that was on account of miscast ballots and overseas ballots. So the, uh, I'm not aware of any error that was made by any of the town clerk, ballot clerks in, in, in my district. Uh, there, there were no errors that were discovered during the recount process. And I, I, while I'm speaking of it, um, there's been some reporting on what is the fraud rate in, in, by voter frauds in elections. And it's somewhere in the range of one in 10 million, which is, uh, you know, that's in the range of being killed by lightning every year. About one in 10 million people are killed by lightning. And that's about the number of, of expected actual voter fraud uh, ex experiences, which is exceedingly tiny. Uh, the, the, the issue of voter fraud uh, is, is, is magnified for political reasons that it does not have a, a substantive factual basis. Right. I and, want to remind, uh, let me just quickly before we move on, uh, remind listeners you're listening to Maine Currents, the Elections 2020 edition on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown. My guests today are Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, former State Representative Ralph Chapman, who you just heard from, Ann Luther, who's a board member for the League of Women Voters and host of the Democracy Forum here in WERU, and Will Hayward, Advocacy Program Coordinator for the League of Women Voters. Be sure to also check out the archives of the Democracy Forum and catch their program live, or, well, catch their program each month anyway. Nothing's live anymore, unfortunately, for safety reasons. We can't be in the studio. But Democracy Forum is very timely, and it airs on the third Friday of each month with much more in, more in-depth discussions of these kinds of topics. And speaking of the Democracy Forum, Ann Luther, I think you were going to say something next. Well, I was just going to say, picking up on Ralph's, Ralph's point, which I love, which is that, um, you know, our town clerks and their staff live in our communities. They're our friends and neighbors. And on election day and throughout the early processing and the same day processing and the counting of the ballots, this is a public process. It's intended to be a public process. The election workers are other people from our communities. This year, we're going to need more poll workers than ever before. There are going to be, there will be a lot more public observation of the process than there ever has been before. Um, you know, this is our democracy, and it depends on all of us taking a role in observing what goes on and protecting its integrity. Amy Freed, go ahead. Just jump in here. You yeah, I, I, I think these are all really great points. One thing I, I'll point out that I've also heard some talk about, I don't know how much this will matter in Maine or will happen in Maine, is that there's, um, there was a consent decree on the Republican Party from, oh, I don't know, roughly 20 years ago. I, I didn't check the exact date, uh, which prevented them from doing certain things that could suppress the vote, including... Uh, certain behaviors with voters at the polls and being very aggressive and challenging their right to vote. And uh, the, cons the consent decree is a judicial order that prevented them from doing that for, you know, quite a long time. But that 
has uh, not been extended. It ran out and was not extended. And I know that there are concerns from the Democratic side that there will be a big effort to do that this year. And there's some attention to how to counter that. And we have seen from time to time since I've been in Maine, I, I've also been here over 20 years, like, like Ann Luther and of um, election day, I don't know if you'd call them pranks or just sort of efforts to confuse people, at least giving people misinformation about who's eligible to vote in 2018 near Humane Farmington. There was a tent that was set up that said, if you got out of state, uh, you lived out of state and you're getting financial, you know, your financial aid could be at risk if you voted in Maine, which is simply not true. Student, out of state students, originally out of state students who are living in Maine to go to college can vote in the state where they're going to college. That's a su Supreme Court decision. And sometimes you'll see these sorts of things that will come well, coming up. Coming like, directly from the president this time. Telling well, that's to vote true. Twice. Yeah, and also talking about challenging people at, at the polls. So uh, that is something I think we'll have to really keep an eye on this year because yeah, the level of fraud is extremely, extremely, extremely low in actuality. I mean, the amount of um, that you would you would suffer for casting a fraudulent ballot is so much for any particular individual and really would not have any, you know, wouldn't change any election. It's hard to get that, you know, I mean, the fraud that we really see that matters is not fraud by particular voters. It's, it's voter it's, suppression and other yeah, tactics like that. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, it's interesting because in the wake of that consent Oh, National, sorry, you cut out there for a second. I heard in the wake of that consent, and then your audio cut out. In in the wake of that consent decree, that National Republican Party has actually been towing the line very closely, so that they don't cross over into dangerous territory. Their candidate, on the other hand, has been all over the place, and um, you know, encouraging unlawful behavior and. Um, uh, inciting armed observers at the polls and all kinds of ridiculous things. But um, the, the party themselves have been kind of hewing to the line because they don't want that consent decree to come back, obviously. But I think your point is well taken, Amy. In addition to the need for many more citizen poll workers and election clerks, many of these hotspot polling places, particularly in college towns and um, our larger communities, are going to be intensely scrutinized by poll watchers from both parties, both Republicans and Democrats are going to be there making sure that their voters are not um, disadvantaged. Or yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Will. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to mention, and, you know, it's not just, you know, the parties in our states watching, the world is watching, like the OECD is sending a group of election observers over here, which, you know, it, it happens, but it feels this year that they may have um, more work to do it than ever. And I think watching a lot of this disinformation and especially what we see on social media right now and what is the role of you know, social media companies to actually provide context for this information, all that, it's just been really fascinating to observe. It's, yeah, Will, what's the story. OECD? The, oh, I always get this wrong. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, I believe, it's um, 35 or so. Um, developed countries that, you know, do these election observation missions around the world. Um, and so we, we get our own too. 
Right. And and I was in um, Montenegro during the presidential election week before and after on behalf of the State Department, because um, oddly enough, I mean, I don't think many people know this, Maine and Montenegro have a sister relationship that dates back to Governor Baldacci. And so I went over there and did a number of different activities. Uh, and I had somebody ask me in a meeting um, after the election, why was it that there were these enormously long lines they saw in places like Cleveland, Ohio? Um, because they don't have that sort of thing. You know, and I, I, I did acknowledge them that that was a, as a result of putting fewer machines in uh, black neighborhoods. And it was basically a voter suppression technique. And, you know, they, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that is a reality. We know there's data that, you know, on, on, on average, it's uh, a much shorter wait for uh, white people than for, for black people, at least in certain states and communities. Um, and that's not by accident. Um, you know, we, it's because people know how many people are going to show up and when they're going to show up and how many machines and all that sort of thing. So there, 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 are, there are reasons to have election observers come. Right. Um, not to mention gerrymandering and all, all of that in terms of, you know, the effect that has on things. Uh, let me just, uh, we have just under 10 minutes left. So I want to go through some sort of a quick lightning round, frequently asked questions. Actually, no, there's one more thing I want to get you all to weigh in on before I do that. Just uh, quickly, if you can, I usually, when we do this election 2020 edition, as we joked before we went to air, I almost every time asked Amy Freed to explain how in January, uh, no matter whether he stays in the White House or not, a new president, you know, there, there will be a new president. Maybe it'll be Trump reelected, but if he's not him, he can't just stay and camp out there that something will happen. This is a slight variation on this. And I heard this on the Ralph Nader radio hour here on WERU last week, just part of a discussion where he was floating a scenario involving Trump getting reelected and then stepping down so that Pence takes over so that Pence can uh, pardon him for any crimes for which he might be charged after Trump might be charged after, after leaving office. Uh, anyone else heard such a scenario floated? Any, you know, how much credibility would you put into something like that? It's all speculation, obviously. But Amy, you look, Amy Freed, you look like you want to jump in, weigh in on this. Yeah, Michael Cohn, who is a former attorney for Donald Trump, um, who was convicted of some campaign finance crimes. Anyway, he uh, has said that's what he thinks will happen. Now, the thing is, uh, Pence, if we had a President Pence, he could only pardon for federal crimes. He still can't pardon for any state crimes. Right. So, it's New York that's going after him for a lot of things. Mm-hmm. We're trying to. I remember when uh, President Ford pardoned Nixon for any n crimes he may have committed. Uh, and at the moment I heard that, I, I was horrified. Uh, I, I remember feeling a, a real deflated feeling of uh, the, the, the wheels of justice had just been knocked off the wagon. And uh, uh, in retrospect, though, uh, it, although it was disappointing to me to see Nixon not held accountable for his his crimes, uh, uh, for the good of the country, I have to admit that I think that what President Ford did was probably the right thing. 
Now, we're in a different situation here, uh, and I, uh, uh, I, I think it is one in which one needs to have uh, justice. Uh, the, the, the justice is necessary. It's a, necess it's a major function of why government exists is to provide for justice. And how justice is, when you weigh, are trying to weigh the benefit of, of prosecuting specific criminal uh, versus uh, the, the good of the society, uh, that, that's a bit tricky. And so I, I'm, I'm not going to try to uh, suggest what I think ought to happen. Uh, and of course, we don't know how the electorate is going to respond uh, uh, in November uh, either. Um, so uh, we're in a, in a real unknown situation, but I have the sense that uh, democracy is far more fragile than, uh, than we uh, sometimes think it is. I also think that it's very important for more people to learn more about what a democracy is. Uh, we're hearing some, some reports on what, say, the characteristics are of, of fascism, but I'd like to see uh, more effort put into teaching youngsters as well as adults what the characteristics of a democracy are so that we if if that's what we believe in we understand what the what what its characteristics are and can support that okay we have about four or five minutes left so this lightning round is going to be really brief but i want to close with just some sort of frequently asked questions is it safe to vote by mail you can all speak at once if you want yes Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> what is the deadline for registering to vote? October 19th, if you're registering by mail, election day, if you're registering in person. Okay. How does one get a mail-in ballot and what is the deadline for requesting one? The best way to do it right now is to go online to the Secretary of State's website and request one using the online request form. Um, it's not the only way, but that's probably the best way. You can get a no-excuse absentee ballot um, in person from your town clerk through Friday before the election. If you have an excuse, a disability, um, a transportation problem out of the, the state for whatever reason, you can still get one with an excuse um, Monday or Tuesday as well. Okay, that's maine.gov slash SOS, I believe, for Secretary yeah. of State's office. Uh, what is the deadline for returning them? They must be returned at, under current law. They have to be returned by 8 p.m. on Election Day. This is Ann Luther answering these questions, by the way, in case listeners are wondering. League of Women Voters, so she knows what she's talking about. Uh, all of these folks know what they're talking about, which is why it's great to have them each time. Uh, can you just drop off the ballot at any time at your town office prior to that deadline? or wherever your voting place is? Well, no, I guess you'd have to do it at your town office with, or within your sort of precinct if you're in a city. Yeah, these drop boxes, many towns are going to have these drop boxes outside their municipal office. You can only use the drop box in your town. Do not drop your ballot off in the drop box in somebody else's town, in your town. Um, most of those are open 24-7. Some of them are inside, so they're only accessible when the office is open. And you can also drop your ballot off in person anytime the office is open. Just walk in and hand it to your clerk. All right. Anything else real quickly that we didn't cover that you want to make sure people are aware of so that they can vote and participate in this upcoming election? My big, big, big is thing is, is to um, encourage everyone to request their absentee ballots now and also to know that you 
will not receive that ballot until early October. So if you receive it, if you request it and you don't receive it immediately, don't panic. It'll come in early October. And there are also many ways to return it. Mail, Dropbox, everything we've discussed. Okay, great. And quickly, uh, Amy Freed, you wanted to weigh in. Yeah, I'll just say the, the, the invocation to have a plan to vote, make a plan to vote is a good one. Think, take a few minutes, think through how you want to do it. Do you want to vote absentee? If you do, how do you want to return your ballot? Just, you know, work it out for yourself and also talk to people you know about that because it, it may be a bit more complex this time. Okay, and ranked choice voting, it looks like is going to be happening, correct? Yes. Ranked choice voting, it, there's no question that we will have ranked choice voting in the U.S. Senate race. It would pertain in the two congressional districts, but both of those races as of now have only two candidates, so it may be a not, not applicable situation there. As of now, it looks like we will have ranked choice voting for president as well, although the final word on that has not yet been spoken. All right. And my final question is, Democracy Forum is going to be airing a couple of days after this airs. We're taping this Elections 2020 edition of Main Currents on Monday. It will air on Tuesday. On Friday, we'll have the next edition of Democracy Forum. What's that going to be about? We're talking about who votes, who can't, and who won't. And we have three experts on uh, marginalized voters and the institutional, systemic, and motivational barriers that some voters face in trying to get to the polls. The guests are fantastic. I, do I have time to name them? Yes, yes. Uh, Michael Kabidi, who's the policy counsel for the ACLU, um, Molly and Dana, who's the ambassador from the Penobscot Nation, and Cheryl Laird, who's an associate professor um, at Bowdoin College and a, a very renowned scholar in Black voting behavior and motivation. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much. And that's on the Democracy Forum here on WERU coming up on Friday at four o'clock in this time slot. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. Catch us on the first and third Tuesday of each month at four o'clock. The third Tuesday edition is our elections 2020 edition. We were just discussing before we went on air about how long the elections 2020 edition is going to run this year. We may be going into 2021 looking ahead, but we'll see. We'll keep it up. And many thanks to my guests for staying here with us and, uh, and persisting through this, hopefully, until the whole thing is over. Uh, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine and former State Representative Ralph Chapman. They've been regular guests throughout, and I'm hoping they will stick with. Uh, Ann Luther, board member for the League of Women Voters and host of Democracy Forum here on WERU, is sort of a semi-regular guest. We hope we'll hear from her again. And uh, Will Hayward, this is his first time on this time from League of Women Voters. He's the Advocacy Project Coordinator. Glad to have you, Will. Maybe we'll have you back, too, if you have time. Love to hear more from you. And stay tuned for Radio EcoShot coming up next here on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, and streaming online at WERU.org.